This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Hello, you're listening to Beyond the Ballot Box. I'm Dashan Johan. Earlier this year, Malaysia took the highly progressive step to abolish the mandatory death penalty. Just to be clear, Malaysia still retained that penalty in general, but it's now completely under the discretion of the judges. In other words, prior to this, there were a number of offences in which if you're found guilty, you will receive the death penalty regardless of the circumstances or what the judge thinks. Whereas now, the judge will have the final say. But is this enough? After all, in a world plagued by injustice and inequality, the death penalty in any form stands as a grotesque symbol of our society's flawed pursuit of justice. On today's show, I'll be having a conversation with two brilliant minds from India. First up is Shreya Rastogi, Director for Death Penalty Litigation and Director for Forensics at Project 39A, as well as Nitika Vishwanath, Director for Sentencing at Project 39A. We're going to be talking about why the criminal justice system needs to be reformed and why the death penalty has got to be abolished altogether. Shreya, Nitika, welcome to the show. Thank, Thank you so you. much. Thank you for having us. So, Shreya, let's start with you. And, and I just want to understand Project 39A a little bit. What exactly is it and how did it come about? So, Project 39A is a criminal justice centre based out of National Law University in New Delhi. Uh, we work across uh, five different areas within the criminal justice system. So, those include uh, the death penalty, uh, which we're going to talk about today, uh, but also our work on forensics, uh, mental health and criminal justice, legal aid, and uh, uh, prevention of torture. Um, so, it, this is uh, our ninth year of existence. We're going to turn 10 next year. Um, and uh, we, in fact, started in 2013 uh, with a um, with a research project, uh, a pan-India study of the socioeconomic profile of those who've been sentenced to death in India. Um, and uh, the aim of the project was also to understand who is India sentencing to death, but along with that, uh, to understand what is the experience that these individuals have as they go through the criminal justice system. Um, and so a year into the fieldwork uh, for that project uh, and all the narratives that we'd heard from the prisoners and their family members, uh, of course, there were uh, many things that we heard that really deeply affected us. But one of the most striking features was just how abysmally uh, people are represented uh, on death row, right? Um, and, and for a variety of reasons. So that that is what kind of compelled us to um, initiate a full-fledged uh, center where we started representing uh, uh, prisoners on death row as well. And that's what uh, started our journey into the criminal justice system. How did you embark on this journey? Why are you so passionate about this? <laughs> So, um, so I'm, I'm actually um, an alumna of National Law University, Delhi. Uh, I'm from their first batch. Um, so I graduated in 2013, uh, right when uh, this project was uh, starting. And uh, for a year after graduation, I was actually working at a corporate law firm, right? Uh, right. Uh, yeah. Uh, and but what 
what I found myself doing, uh, you know, like and you're working long hours and, you know, working on a lot of due diligence, whatever. Uh, but I always would go back home and just read about like um, social issues and and talk about that with my friends. And so something just didn't feel right. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I thought that I, I wanted to do something else with my life. Um, and and so our current director, uh, uh, the founding director of the center, uh, Anup Surendath, uh, he and I would talk about uh, what What's happening with the death penalty research project uh, that was going on and uh, yeah and we just we thought that you know it's probably important that we do something about this uh, and um, yeah maybe let's start a center and these are two individuals by the way so what you need to know about Anoop is Anoop is a professor right, right? Um, so Anoop's um, studied law in India as well and thereafter he went to the University of Oxford uh, where he uh, did uh, his BCL and his DPhil D- right uh, and Anoop's uh, focus has been constitutional law. Um, so uh, his entire career, he'd never been a criminal practitioner, mm. right? I was a person who had just been in a corporate law firm for a year. <laughs> so barely any experience right. whatsoever. And so it's these kind of individuals just coming together. But why can't we represent these individuals, right? Like, why can't we do something about this? And so, yeah, uh, very unlikely f- uh, forces uh, coming together. Our other fo- founding members also, uh, uh, my colleagues, uh, uh, Maitri and Lubiti, uh, they also had very little or in fact no criminal uh, uh, practice experience. So yeah, so I guess it was just a lot of it was just, um, you know, let's let's do something about this, right. being deeply affected by this, uh, affected by the fact that the system can be so cruel and take someone's life away without ensuring a just and fair trial. Yeah, and just the idea that if we don't do something, then who will? So, Nitika, how did you get, you know, involved in this this idea of pushing for the reformation of the criminal justice system? Um, was this always something you were passionate about growing up, or what was what's your story? I joined Project Thirty Nine A when it was two years old uh, in twenty sixteen. Uh, but to sort of answer your question, I need to go back to the origins of sort of where I my interest in criminal right. justice started. And this was in 2012 uh, when I became a lawyer about 11 years ago. And for me, uh, it's a deeply personal sort of um, decision. Mm. Uh, I grew up in a family where, you know, uh, uh, as the only daughter with two brothers and uh, really being struck by the unequal relationship uh, between my parents, you know, and seeing the marriage not being equal and then went on after law school to sort of very organically represent women survivors of domestic violence and sexual violence, having experienced sexual violence as a child. So it was a very deeply personal decision and that's where sort of the passion came from because I could see that what I had gone through, uh, you know, made me uncomfortable or what I was seeing at home, I was not okay with that. And though... Uh, it was unequal in a very subtle way, my parents' relationship, but that really sort of uh, influenced me deeply. So for two years, about two years, I represented survivors and I went back after studying uh, law in Bangalore in India. I went back to my hometown in Lucknow, started working with a small feminist organization. So it was quite difficult going back home, doing this work where your parents did not approve of you, of coming back from a big city to your small town. It used to be a smaller town then and uh, doing this kind of work uh, where I mean you could have chosen to work uh, in a more lucrative space and of course I was barely making any money 
and two years of that is how I think those were very important years. The first two mm-hmm. years uh, being exposed to the criminal justice system, working with the police and really seeing what was happening at the grassroots level. And from there, I sort of organically got interested in feminist theory. And then I went on to do a master's study, a master's degree in India in women's studies. And for my master's, my research was a courtroom ethnography of rape trials where I went back to the courts in Lucknow. And I think that was the first time when in the courtroom I was also exposed to people who were offend- accused of these crimes. Mm-hmm. And that was really my first experience where I could see that something was not right. And I had always thought of the system from the perspective of the victims and survivors, right. but never from the perspective of the offenders. But those eight weeks being in court and observing these trials was my sort of first experience. And uh, by the time I finished my degree in 2016, Project 39A had put out this call and they were looking for someone to lead their trial court research. And that was everything thing that I was interested in. So for me, it's like, it was almost as if uh, destiny had planned this for me. And uh, yeah, ever since I've been at Project 39A, and, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's strange, it's a strange analogy, like how I think of my relationship with Project 39A. And I don't think I've ever said this in public, that I almost think of it as my adopted child. Like it's a political (laughs) commitment that is, yeah, it's, it's a lifelong commitment now. India, just like Malaysia, is a former British colony. And there are a lot of overlaps in terms of the way our criminal justice system is structured and all of that, right? In fact, we learn throughout the years, we learn a lot um, from India. So where is India right now in terms of the death penalty? What are the laws? In India, there are um, several central and state legislations under which uh, the death sentence can be given. Uh, This will be for a variety of offences. Offences which obviously include the loss of life, so homicidal cases. But there are also a whole range of non-homicidal offences for which uh, the death sentence can be imposed. So this would include, uh, I mean, the the big category here is uh, child rape. Uh, So the rape of any uh, person below the age of 18 uh, uh, and in specific contexts uh, that, uh, you know, that that, that uh, sentence can be imposed. Uh, but there's also a death penalty for a variety of other offences uh, like um, terrorism offences, um, and then some very obscure offenses where, uh, like uh, blowing up a pipeline, uh, you know, or um, uh, um, I think offenses on the Delhi Metro, uh, right. those are also punishable with uh, with death. Uh, yeah, so it's it's a whole range of offenses for which the death sentence can be imposed. But the the big categories under which currently uh, people are on death row in India, uh, those include murder and uh, rape and murder. So those are the two big categories. What about when it comes to drugs? Because Malaysia has very draconian um, drug policies, right? Um, For example, even uh, cannabis, above 200 grams, you can get the death penalty. What is it like in India in terms of drug policy? Yeah, so in India, the drug offences, it's only if you are convicted of a repeat drug offence, can you be uh, sentenced 
happens with death and i should also add that uh, in across the law right um, our we've never had a, a mandatory death penalty uh, we had it for one offense uh, uh, which was held to be unconstitutional um, and so since then while there are still a few uh, offenses that remain across different statute books uh, that are written in a way uh, uh, that make the death penalty as the only punishment that can be given if in case a person is convicted uh, but uh, the court has back in 1983 the court uh, declared mandatory uh, death penalty as uh, unconstitutional right um, so so yeah so our uh, um, capital sentencing is entirely discretionary so that's very um, important to note because Malaysia only just um, uh, abolished the mandatory death penalty and moved towards a full-on um, discretionary death penalty, right? Um, so some might um, then point and ask, um, what, why sh- um, should we then move towards some um, total abolition? Um, we've already, um, let's say in the case of India, already uh, for a very long time not had the mandatory death penalty is fully discretionary why do y'all think it's still important to take even more steps towards a total abolition? So I think before I answer uh, the abolition question, mm-hmm. I think it's important to understand that um, why is it that mandatory death penalty is bad? And is it that uh, discretionary uh, sentencing, right? right? Uh, is that uh, without any issues, right? Mm-hmm. Because you will find that the same issues that we had with the mandatory death penalty, that it can be arbitrarily imposed, that it does not look at the circumstances of the crime and the criminal and uh, allow judges to exercise their discretion and treats everyone uh, with the same stroke. Uh, those were the issues that we saw with the mandatory uh, uh, death penalty, right? Uh, but the problem is that it's not as if just by adding uh, the option of other sentences that uh, you're able to cure the issues, uh, the the deeper constitutional issues that you had with the mandatory sentencing. And the reason for that is that unless and until, uh, firstly, unless and until you have a clear uh, sentencing framework within which uh, the sentences will be handed out, you have a robust uh, legal aid, legal representation system where you ensure that the offender is properly represented, uh, has uh, uh, the ability to make meaningfully make arguments uh, related to conviction as well as related to sentencing, that the sentencing hearing, in fact, is uh, very evidence-based, that it, requi- it requires the judges to look at the facts and circumstances of the case, and the judges actually do that in a manner which is equal across uh, cases, right? Uh, that equality of process is ensured for everyone, unless and until these things happen, even discretionary sentencing will be arbitrary. It can be disproportionate, right? Uh, It will have due process uh, issues. Um, And so um, that's the experience that we've had in India uh, for the last, uh, I mean, the last challenge to the constitutionality of the death penalty in India was in 1980. So it's more than four decades ago. Uh, And the life of the law since then uh, has been um, one which is rift with with so much arbitrariness uh, that we see that uh, it's almost a lethal lottery, right? right. Uh, the judges that uh, get to hear your case, because 
some judges um, will be um, more willing to hear these arguments would be would ensure that a proper uh, hearing happens on sentence that time is given to the offender to prepare on issues of sentence and then only uh, the sentence is handed out but some other judges will uh, see this almost as a mechanical exercise uh, right um, and so that's what we've seen in the last uh, four decades and and I think from there uh, we can start asking ourselves that if we don't have a system that can ensure that the death penalty and an irreversible punishment like the death penalty is meted out in a manner uh, which is in compliance with the right to life, right to equality, then do we really uh, need or can we really have a punishment like that in a system which is so unequal and so unjust? Has there been momentum um, over the past, let's say, decade or, or, or perhaps two decades, or even the last five years in terms of pushing towards total abolition. Talk to me about some of the challenges and accomplishments in this regard. In particular, also, how does Project 39A engage with issues related to death penalty in India? So just going back to 1980, when the mm -hmm. last challenge was made to the constitutionality of death penalty, when we look at then and when we look at now, I think the significant progress that we've made uh, uh, towards, I guess, challenging the death penalty again is really the fact that at that point, there was no empirical evidence on the administration of death penalty. Right. So when the court was looking at that question, it was looking at it in a very abstract philosophical manner. There was no information available on who are these people who get the penalty, uh, what is their experience like with the system? Do they have good lawyers? So starting from our foundational work, Death Penalty India Report, we've been able to document that. Uh, and that is a, that is very big progress. And in that sense, our sort of identity as a pro bono litigation and research center in a law university has been very, very useful mm. because not only do we handle 70% of all the death penalty litigation in the Indian Supreme Court, we also document empirical trends on what's happening in the court. So everything that Shreya's sort of told you about the decision making, we have evidence, empirical evidence to show that. And I think that evidence is very important also because uh, unlike many parts of the world where countries have moved away from the death penalty, what we've seen in the last decade in India is that we have in fact expanded the legislative scope of the death penalty, especially for sexual violence, where now we have death penalty in place for non-homicidal child rape, which is in violation of the international law standard, which says that death penalty has to be restricted for most serious crimes and for intentional killings. So, of course, our parliament has been moving towards penal populism and harsh and tough on crimes approach. And that's where our courts become very, very important because we've managed to restrict the use of the death penalty on these individuals, secure multiple acquittals, a lot of them this year, along with commutations of death sentences. So I feel like in terms of challenging the death penalty, court is going to be our site. Uh, now, of course, it it remains to be seen uh, whether the court is going to say that, OK, we understand that uh, our laws are defective or there are lots of gaps and maybe perhaps they'll say that, you know, okay, let's strengthen the law more and they may not entertain the question of 
uh, doing away with the pun- uh, with the death penalty in and of itself but i think we are at a very important place uh, in, in terms of death penalty in india because last year one of our cases uh, sort of led to a suomoto uh, writ uh, uh, the supreme court sort of taking cognizance and for the first time in four decades the supreme court took cognizance of the fact that the death penalty sentencing framework that was laid down in 1980 has serious defects and the law needs to be sentencing law needs to be reformed and I, we feel like it's a very important moment for us to achieve everything that we've sort of seen and to really try and make a difference On the show with me today is Shreya Rastogi and Neetika Viswanath from Project 39A. We will continue our conversation after the break. Keep it here on Beyond the Ballot Box, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Beyond the Ballot Box. I'm Dashran Johan and on the show with me today is Shreya Rastogi and Neetika Viswanath from Project 39A it's an organization based in India and we're talking about the death penalty and the criminal justice system this conversation will also be available on podcast so do subscribe to us you can look up beyond the ballot box on the BFM app Spotify or wherever you get your podcast from so Neetika from your perspective what is the fundamental purpose of criminal punishment um, within the criminal justice system there are two possible answers to this one is that what should be the purpose of punishment right. uh, and of course there are multiple uh, theories that exist uh, and some of the popular ones are that you punish people because you want to deter crimes uh, the other one is that if someone has committed crime they have sort of you know broken that social contract theory so they have to be punished because that equilibrium needs to be maintained uh, so a lot about uh, the punishment being in proportion to the crime uh, which is to say that uh, it has to be proportional to the harm that you've caused uh, then there are other theories but broadly they fall within this category of utilitarian right. or uh, where there is utility to the punishment or the other theory where it is not about any utility but punishment being important in and of itself now of course these theories exist but what is interesting about our system is that we've never really had any official conversation on why we punish and it's a country that punishes harshly it's a country that imposes uh, sentences people to death uh, uh, and we have constantly been moving to harsher and harsher punishments in fact that has become our vision of criminal law reform lesser rights for offenders and harsher punishments but it's a system that has never really given a thought to the fact that why do we punish mm. and you will often find parliamentarians and especially in the sexual violence context um citing in the parliament and in media that they want to protect our women and children uh and they're doing it to deter these crimes but uh that is that completely loses sight of the fact that criminal law in fact is uh not well placed to address social issues like sexual violence and in fact it has a very very limited role uh, so i think the problem really is that 
we do not acknowledge the limitations of criminal law it is a very very limited tool in terms of bringing about social change and we need to be cognizant of that and then think about what punishments can really do right so when you're push for abolition like shreya i want to get your thoughts on this as well what is the the sort of end goal right um when when we look at project 39 what is the big um philosophical change um that y'all are trying to achieve i think simply put the philosophical change is to uh to ensure that uh the system the criminal justice system it does not become a site of oppression uh for the poor and the marginalized right mm-hmm. uh, so when we uh, and just going back to even the last question uh, when you look at uh, um who who do we punish mm-hmm. right and how how do we understand crime what you will realize uh, and this is not just in the context of the death penalty but mostly the people who are punished within the criminal justice system are often people who come from different uh, different uh, marginalized communities right and so there is a disparate impact uh, that we that the system has on the poor now does this mean that it's only the poor and the socially and economically backward um, uh, or the minorities are they the only ones who commit crime of course not right uh, so the point is that if that is not the case then why is it that they are the ones who bear the brunt of the criminal justice system the most and then uh, once uh, they are convicted they are the ones who are serving these extremely harsh and long sentences or in fact uh, in the case of the death penalty the ones who are uh, the majority of the people on death row right uh, and so our like theory of change here is to ensure that we make the criminal justice system a just and fair space so that the rights of such individuals is protected um and and we do that uh, through our intervention in court we do that by ensuring that we are bringing out uh, like nitika mentioned that we bring out a very rigorous empirical research through which we can understand the criminal justice system uh, much better right and see whether um, it is set out it is it actually achieving the goals that it it set out with uh, one of the other uh, important theories of criminal justice in india specifically is the fact that we see ourselves as a, as a system uh, whose ultimate goal is reformation right but it i feel that that is almost a, in in theory we want to be a correctional and a reformative system but we are very far from it in its implementation mm-hmm. um and and for a variety of reasons right um so so the idea uh, that we approach our work with is the fact that to see that was the system actually able to achieve uh, its uh, reformative and correctional goals could you share some insights um from your research on how the death penalty intersects with what you just talked about right um economic and social disparities because oftentimes i think the misconception um that people have right within the imagination uh, of the masses a prison is a place where they think it is packed with the worst of the worst serial killers and and rapists and and that's what prisons about right But just like you alluded to and also if we refer to the works of brilliant scholars like Angela Davis they often talk about the criminal justice system in its current form or current structure as a war on the poor I mean Angela Davis once said 
prisons do not disappear social problems, they disappear human beings. Homelessness, unemployment, drug addiction, mental illness and illiteracy are only a few of the problems that disappear from public view when the human beings contending with them are relegated to the cages. End quote. How do you see it? Wow. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you're absolutely right uh, that when we understand who we punish, mostly you will find that it is the poor and the marginalized. And right. so therefore, the question that comes up is that are we in fact criminalizing these acts, these offenses, or are we criminalizing poverty? And uh, and yeah, that's, that's absolutely true for India as well. Uh, now, if I was to just um, refer to some of our uh, research mm-hmm. um, on the death penalty, like I mentioned earlier, we started with the death penalty research project uh, where we wanted to understand uh, who is India sentencing to death. And um, I mean, obviously, as we started this project, we had an intuition about uh, the fact that we'll find it's the poor and and the marginalized. But uh, empirically, there was no uh, evidence, um, right? And there was very little evidence uh, to support that. Um, Now, some of the uh, statistics and just the trends that we saw. So there were um, 74% of the people uh, that we interviewed and these were all of India's death row prisoners from 2013 to 2015. 74% of them were economically vulnerable, right? Um, Over 70% of them were either scheduled caste, scheduled tribes or backward uh, classes. So for for, uh, Malaysians that may not uh, understand these terminologies, what does scheduled caste mean? Yeah, so our constitution empowers um, the parliament to notify certain uh, backward uh, uh, classes and castes. So there's a caste system in India, right? The Those castes that are extremely historically have been marginalized, uh, those uh, are notified to be as scheduled castes mm-hmm. so that the different aspects of the law may therefore uh, provide a certain kind of uh, uh, um, uh, reservation and uh, for uh, such uh, castes, right? So, so most of the people that we saw uh, on death row, they either belong to either scheduled castes, scheduled tribes or other backward, uh, economically and socially backward classes. Uh, there were a high number of religious minorities as well. And specifically for certain type of offences, you found, uh, you know, uh, certain religious minorities to be at the top. There's that. And then we found that um, many of the people, like only 20, uh, there were 23% of the people who had never even uh, been to school, uh, mm-hmm. right, had received no type of um, uh, formal education. And over 60% of them had not even completed their secondary education. Um, so what all of this tells us is that the people who we are imposing the harshest punishment uh, on are people who are extremely, extremely vulnerable, right? These are people who will not be able to fight for their rights while in theory they have a lot of rights. Everyone uh, has the same right under the Indian constitution, right? Be it a poor person, a rich person, a Muslim, a Dalit, a Hindu, a Christian, all of the, us have the same rights. But when you're coming from a certain uh, social and economic uh, background, you know you do not have the power to be able to enforce your rights. 
uh, and that is what um, has played out uh, in the Indian context. Nitika, I'm very curious to get your thoughts as well. Um, you told a very interesting personal story about your journey and you begin your, your activism journey and looking at the world through a, a feminist prism. Now that you are working on um, um, criminal justice reform, the death penalty, talk to me about the intersectionality or the overlaps you see between the feminist struggle and the struggle to reform the, the death penalty, for example. Thank you uh, for that very interesting question. I've often thought about it. And, you know, I mean, of course, there are different strands of feminism, but ultimately it is also about what you make of it. And I think uh, two years of studying feminist theory, my takeaway really was that, you know, it is all about intersectionality. And it mm -hmm. is, uh, of course, feminism is not just about women. It is about marginalized people across different axes. It could be caste, it could be religion, it could be gender, sexuality, ability systems. Uh, so I actually do not see uh, much of a difference. And in fact, my work on both sides of the criminal justice system, which is largely criminal legal system because there's very little justice in it. Mm -hmm. I feel like uh, it has not worked for survivors or for offenders. And in fact, uh, the problem is that what you increasingly see is that the state sort of um, has moved towards harsher laws, a more penal severity. But ultimately, what that is doing is giving more power to the state and doing very little for what survivors or victims need. And of course, uh, incarcerating offenders more. So just sort of going back to the point that you made about Angela Davis, right? I mean, of course, uh, we are here to reform the system and we are here to bring focus to the fact that, well, you're not criminalizing offenses, but you're criminalizing certain kind of people, you're criminalizing poverty. So in a way, what we're also trying to do through our work is to show harms of the criminal justice system and to say that, well, you know, please do not make criminal law your choice uh, for everything as a solution. And that's really where it sort of that's where I think both pieces of my work come together, that it is really about seeing those harms and being cognizant of it. So many believe that the death penalty is a crime deterrent. That's, I think, the biggest argument um, against the abolition of the death penalty. How would you respond to someone who says that if we abolish the death penalty, crime is going to spike and people are going to go on a murderous rampage? So that's a myth, right? That the death penalty will deter people from committing these uh, serious crimes. That's an absolute myth. There is no empirical basis uh, to that claim. And there's there's a lot of writing uh, across the world on that. Um, uh, that uh, th we just haven't, uh, um, you know, uh, been able to show that. And I believe that maybe, probably for a few kind of offences, uh, certain financial offences, you could say that, yes, uh, punishment uh, may provide a certain kind of deterrence right uh, but other than that uh, just uh, very broadly speaking as well whether uh, the type of punishment uh, that an offense uh, you know maybe uh, 
penalized with uh, if that has any connection to the deterrent value uh, of uh, that crime uh, yeah these are things that just we we just haven't studied right and there isn't any empirical basis to suggest that in the context particularly of the death penalty i can share with you uh, specifically with respect to india when we look at uh, we've been talking about sexual violence quite a lot when you look at sexual violence in india right um of course uh, the last executions that we had in india were in 2020 uh, for uh, the infamous uh, gang rape and murder that happened in 2012 in new delhi um if you go back and look at uh, the rate uh, of rapes uh, that have been reported in india and then, and there's a the reason why i say it with emphasis is because there is a big problem of unreported rapes in india as well right. but even if you look at the reported numbers you will not see a decrease post the executions right or pre the executions so there is really it's not as if people don't know that it is bad to rape that you should not rape that it is a very serious crime that it can in fact be punished with that all of those are things that people will know about but that has absolutely no bearing on why uh we have uh, so much sexual violence in the country right and and when you in fact dig deeper and you try and understand as to why sexual violence exists in india uh, what you'll realize is that most of the sexual violence is in fact uh, perpetrated by those who are known to the victims right they are people within the family or within the family circle um uh, you know friends etc so it is a social problem and we somehow believe that just because we will have this the most serious punishment in the system for such an offense we will somehow be able to deter people from uh, committing rape and that connection just does not exist so what is the public perception um towards the death penalty in india if you look at it you know over the past 5 years um because i think um you know in politics it's more often than not um perception matters more than facts right um we all know the facts um but it's it's what's within the public imagination what they believe to be true which often drives popular movements drives policy change and and all of that what is the public perception towards the death penalty in india and how what tell me about the work that you do to change this perception So I want to sort of connect this to the last question that mm-hmm. Shreya was responding to because the fact that deterrence gets cited so often as a justification for the death penalty is very much premised on that public mm-hmm. perception that you talk about right uh, because if you knew even a little about the criminal justice system and how criminal law operates you'd know that deterrence is not going to work and the reason i say that is because deterrence makes two fundamental assumptions about criminal law rationality fallacy and the knowledge fallacy it assumes that everyone who commits crime is somehow aware of what punishment it that crime has in the indian penal code and to you're assuming that people are sitting there making doing this cost benefit analysis right and then committing crimes right. and we know that that's not how crimes happen right uh so i just wanted to say that because the argument on deterrence is a reflection of the larger problem with public perception and the difference between public perception versus an informed public opinion 
and uh, a lot of the problems that we see uh, in the criminal justice system in terms of the demands for the death penalty, harsher punishments or lesser rights for offenders is coming from that completely uninformed place. And your governments, your state, uh, people in power benefit from that kind of uh, lack of knowledge and ignorance because when uh, my government then offers me uh, death penalty as a deterrent response uh, to sexual violence, I accept it because it makes sense because I don't know anything about the system. I don't know how it works. I don't know the fact that it is actually the certainty of the punishment and not the severity of the punishment that deters. I don't know the research from the US, which is the only place where deterrent studies have happened, which show that in fact there is no link between uh, punishment, having the death penalty and on murder rates, right? I mean, that research has shown that, that you cannot establish that link. So, uh, I think the biggest issue really is first uh, making the public discourse more informed. And that's what Project 39A uh, tries to do along with uh, other work on generating research and doing litigation. It's to really convert uh, very technical and complex conversations into uh, a lot more uh, into a lot more accessible forms, be it videos, be it uh, writing uh, on um, writing in print media and writing in more accessible ways and not like lawyers and academics. And we feel like that is very important. Uh, and that is the first step before the public can even be a stakeholder in the criminal justice conversation, because you first need to inform them and they need to make more aware choices. When you engage with MPs, um, regardless of which side of the aisle they are from, but when you talk to people who are pro-death penalty or against abolition, do you find that they themselves are often ignorant to the real statistics, the real facts that it's not really a deterrent and, and so on and so forth? Or are they well aware of these facts but are motivated um, to keep the death penalty because of self-interest? I think it's a bit of both, mm. right? Um, and uh, people are, uh, and even those in power, they are ignorant. Uh, and uh, I guess the that ignorance, there are many shades to that ignorance as well, right? Uh, I mean, people may uh, uh, be aware of uh, certain skewed statistics, uh, but uh, will not actually know the different nuances uh, um, that uh, Nitika and I have been talking about in terms of either the deterrent value or uh, of uh, punishment, of any kind of punishment, and uh, uh, specifically of the death penalty, whether there has been any kind of empirical uh, research studies, etc. on that. So there's that. But there is also equally, I think for a large part, it is very much a political uh, choice uh, to keep the death penalty because it's it's coming from the perspective that if I if I st- Tell my electorate uh, that, uh, yes, there is rising crime and I am going to solve this by getting rid of these individuals, uh, these bad apples in society. And once I do that, the streets will be much safer for all of us. Right. That's an easy pitch to sell. Um, And that's what uh, is sold to the public and which is why there is so much public support for the death penalty in India as well. Um, But uh, that, again, is a fairy tale, right? Uh, Because that's not what is going to reduce crime in society. 
to really reduce crime you're going to have to first understand why does crime happen and crime happens because of a variety of socio economic factors ills in our society historical ills that we just haven't dealt with that criminal law isn't equipped to deal with um and that is real hard work right so it's a political choice whether i want to do that hard work and really solve this or do i want to stay in power um and 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 to be able to do the 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 former right you're going to have to understand uh the aims of the criminal justice system not from the binary of what are victim rights and what are the rights of the offender but rather from the perspective of what should the society what does the society really need and what should the constitution um kind of guarantee what is that uh, what is the constitution guarantee for every citizen within our society right you're going to have to do the thinking and reimagine the way in which you're addressing and responding to crime oftentimes the assumption is or you know the assumption towards abolitionists is that oh so are you tra- telling me that you want all the rapists now to just walk free is that what you're doing there's this again it goes back to this perception that people have what is what are y'all proposing if not the death penalty then what for offenders of serious crime you're talking about people like serial killers and and all of that what is the appropriate sentence to dish out i mean india and malaysia are not the only places in the world mm-hmm. where these serious crimes are committed Absolutely. right but a lot of countries manage without the death penalty and those countries have life imprisonment as the harshest punishment but uh, what i do want to say here is that um, in this effort to abolish the death penalty and move away from it uh, one has seen another evil arise which is a uh, life imprisonment without the possibility of ever getting out right which and is almost like the death penalty absolutely absolutely right. so i think uh, and just going back to what shreya was saying i know that reformation has only been a theoretical concept so far but i think we need to really practice it and so i would say life imprisonment but that option to reform rehabilitate be better and get out has to be there you have to give everyone a chance and a hope to do better to be better and i'm sorry if you think that you cannot do that then you should not be punishing anyone at all i also want to sort of go back to like the last conversation that we were having about the utility of the death penalty right. and and i feel like while deterrence is often offered as the main justification it is because uh, we are embarrassed to acknowledge the fact that we know deterrence is not going to work ultimately it is all about vengeance and bloodlust and i think uh, we need to start acknowledging that and confronting that and asking ourselves that you know what do we really make of that as civilized nations that uh, we still have that urge to take away people's life a vigilante justice mob lynching you know very little patience for due process it ultimately is about that and and i think that politicians know that uh, that they can cite deterrence but ultimately they are appealing to our this uh, sense of retribution in us and and it's working so unless we confront that and unless we meaningfully uh, start adopting uh, goals of reformation and start seeing prisons as those spaces uh, i don't think we are going to make any change but yes the alternative is life but life where there is an option of getting out 
I think that's really wonderfully put. Before we wrap this conversation up, would each of you all have a final message for us? I think it's such an important moment in time that Malaysia is in right now uh, with what has been achieved uh, this year uh, with the two um, you know, acts that were passed, uh, both abolishing mandatory death penalty as well as creating a new remedy uh, for those individuals um, um, by revising their uh, uh, death sentences or their natural life without parole. I think uh, that's that's incredible. Uh, Malaysia is really leading the way in the South Asia and Southeast Asian region to be able to do this. Um, and uh, it's I, I feel that uh, my message would be for, for Malaysia... Uh, what I would hope to see, uh, I guess, uh, in the coming year would be uh, how this uh, resentencing process that is now going to begin uh, before the federal court, uh, how that is going to play out in a manner which ensures that uh, the uh, resentencing happens uh, in compliance with the aims of the Constitution, right? To ensure that, again, uh, by introducing, by by having a discretionary sentencing, that we are not committing the same problems of uh, arbitrary sentencing that was happening with the mandatory death penalty. So I think that that would be the real place where we need to work together and we need to do this work collectively as as uh, judges, as lawyers, as prosecutors, as the public uh, um, because this is going to require serious investment of time and effort in understanding firstly um, um, who these, uh, how many you know, how many cases there are out there I believe there are more than 1000 uh, almost 1020 people who are going to undergo this uh, recent sentencing process. So to first uh, uh, identify those individuals to ensure uh, that all of them uh, know about their rights uh, through this process, to ensure that um, that either uh, they're getting the minimum sentence or if they're not getting the minimum sentence and if you're still thinking about uh, the uh, option between life and death, uh, that we use death penalty only in the most exceptional cases, if any, uh, and uh, arrive at that conclusion after rigorous uh, uh, and evidence-based uh, sentencing hearings have uh, happened, right, where both the state as well as uh, uh, the accused is uh, given an opportunity to present to the court uh, their evidence on uh, sentencing, uh, specifically evidence of mitigation, because these are all going to be individuals who have served already very, very long term sentences. Right. So I would my message would be to ensure that we know about these individuals as much as possible, uh, that the lives of these uh, uh, people is brought before the court, that they are contextualized, that what has happened to them in uh, the years of incarceration, that that is also brought before the court, uh, that there are rigorous assessments which are done uh, to their mental health so that we know all of this before we actually decide the big question of life and death. Neetika? I completely echo what Shreya said and I think the only thing that I'd like to add is that as, as the Indian system it has taken us almost 43 years to have some semblance of a constitutional framework uh, in a form where questions of life and death can be decided fairly. I mean, it's another thing whether that is actually happening at all levels. But I feel like Malaysia has that opportunity to do that right from the beginning and learn from some of the mistakes that we made and not make that mistake. So I think it's a great, incredible opportunity. And what is really great is that Malaysia has not only done away with the mandatory death penalty, but also with life till the end of natural life. And I feel like that is such a progressive move. And I really, really hope that uh, in years to come, 
caning is also reconsidered as a form of criminal punishment. And on that note, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you thank so you. much. I've been speaking to Shriya Rastogi and Nitika Vishwanath from Project 39A. If you missed any part of this conversation, you can also check us out on podcasts. We're available on the BFM app, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You just have to look up Beyond the Ballot Box podcast and subscribe to us. I'm Dashran Johan, and this has been Beyond the Ballot Box, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.